Hi, it's me again. I'm still here. Not to worry, though, the new season starts very soon. In the meantime, I've got another goodie for you. This is an episode of the Excellent Failure to Adapt podcast. This is Sarah's second appearance, and she was there to discuss the short story and film It Happened One Night. This is a nearly 100-year-old movie that feels very modern in a lot of great ways. Like I said, this is Sarah's second appearance on the podcast, which is hosted by Maggie Takuda Hall and Red Scott. It's a great idea. Talking about stories that change from one form to another. I highly recommend following the podcast. Uh, there'll be links in show notes, as well as if your podcast app supports it, you should be able to click on your chapter title, but you can find it in any podcast app. You can also check out Red Scott, who is a comedian. You can find him on Instagram and Twitter. And Maggie Takuda Hall is an author who has written a number of books. I can personally recommend also an octopus to the little ones. She has another book called Love in the Library. The title alone contains two words that should perk up Faded Mates readers. I really think anybody who enjoys Faded Mates will enjoy this episode, so please take a listen, and when you're done, subscribe and follow Red and Maggie wherever you can find them. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Failure to Adapt, the podcast where we talk about stories that change from one form to another. I'm Maggie Takuda Hall, a children's and young adult book author. And I'm Red Scott, a stand-up comic and podcaster. Today, we have a very special guest. She's a New York Times, Washington Post, and USA Today bestseller, the author of sexy historical romances that have been translated into 25 languages. She's the queen, the goddess, the boss of the much-beloved McLeanaverse, a tireless advocate of the romance genre, the co-host of the Faded Mates podcast, and now the third book in the Hell's Bell Quartet, Knockout comes out on August 22nd. I am so excited for Tommy to go boom. Sarah McLean, thank you so much for being here. Sarah! Yay! Thank you. You forgot friend of the pod. Yes, You're right. I love your podcast so much. And friend of the pod, Sarah McLean. <laughs> Sarah, we're so excited to have you back. Like literally the second we stopped recording with you last time, we were like, we will have her back on as many times as she would like to be on. <laughs> I will come anytime you want to have me on. Oh, thank I'll you. join I'll join the club. We'll just we'll turn into a trio. I love this. And today we're talking about the short story The Night Bus, which was published in 1933 by Cosmopolitan Magazine. And the film, It Happened One Night, mm -hmm. which came out in 1934. So we're like going back on this one. Listen, I was so delighted. You you asked me to do this. And of course, because I love the podcast so much, I was like, yes, whatever. And then I was like, wait, what? What are we doing? <laughs> I, I assumed, sorry, from your email, I assumed you had some relationship with this. Had, had you not seen this at all? Of course, I know it happened one night because if you have had any interest in film ever, especially like screwball comedy, there is this sort of legend of it happened one night. But I had, I had never seen it. I was actually kind of surprised to discover I had never seen it because I figured I would have watched it, you know, with my dad on Turner Classic Movies at some point. So I guess it's probably fair to assume you also had not read the short story it was based <laughs> on. No. Oh, my God. The amount of spelunking I had to do to find a copy of this short story was... <laughs> 
insane. Actual internet sleuthery. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> they, everyone, they, Red and Maggie are amazing. Red. And they delivered me a PDF <laughs> by email of a Cosm- of Cosmopolitan magazine, complete with advertising. Yes. And I really feel oh like there God. should be like a whole separate piece of the podcast. It's just about the ads that are in here that are incredible. It was so hard to focus. Sometimes you're reading this story and you're like, I'm sorry, you're saying what about weight loss? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, that was just all mess, right? Like (laughs) Those ladies were all on mess. It's 1989 and I'm like, there's no Zempig ad in here? What's going on? (laughs) Or it's 89 years ago, rather, a more accurate description of what I'm describing. So you were new to it. Totally. Completely new. I mean, I knew it was a romance. I knew it was a romantic comedy. Like, I, I knew. Yeah. And the zeitgeist knew. But no, I completely knew. And I'm so delighted. I had the best two days. Oh, my God. Red, what is your relationship with this? Because you're the reason we're doing this one. Oh, absolutely. This is one of my all time favorite movies. It's currently in my Letterbox D top four. <laughs> Up until I watched this movie, I was like, listen, if it's older than the 1980s, can it be that good? Like, can it actually be a good film? Like, they're all so boring and black and white and unrelatable. And this was the first movie that I was just like, how old is this? No. This movie's just entertaining. I'm just entertained by this 89-year-old film that I am watching. And that was shocking to me. And it, it really just opened up a whole 50 years of cinema to me. So aside from it just being... One of the best rom-coms of all time. A movie that inexplicably is entertaining. I will not say it holds up. That is a different phrase. Inexplicably entertaining <laughs> movie in 2023. Mm-hmm. I owe so much to this film. Like, it just showed me that I was just being closed-minded in a way that I had not considered. Mm-hmm. And so there's nostalgia for that. Also, it's genuinely, like, you're like, oh, yeah, it's an old movie. And, like... When you're, I, whenever I'm watching a movie in the 1960s, let's say, and it looks bad and it sounds bad, I'm like, 30 years ago they had this nailed. 30 years ago. <laughs> like, it is shockingly viewable in a way that I don't understand on a base level. So it's, yeah. it's a tour de force. I love everything about it. Um, it <laughs> holds a special place in my heart, even just as a film, if it wasn't for all the, that other stuff. And I just really enjoy it. So was this your first time reading the short story? Oh, yeah. When I suggested this. <laughs> I mean, isn't it everyone's? <laughs> the big twist in this series, because I did suggest short stories, and I hadn't appreciated how out of print a lot of these short stories are. <laughs> Everything yeah. else we have done, like, it's, you know, it's the internet. <laughs> like, this is something that was in print. I'm sure somebody scanned it at some point. But no, you if you search Nightbus, you will probably turn out the novelization that was sold in the 50s, which you could buy copies on eBay. So obviously that's much longer after the movie came out. Yeah, I had to like find an archival site, figure out which issue it was, <laughs> go through it page by page, and then oh my like God. get the right pages of the PDF. Like it, it is very difficult to find this story. So yes, first time. I would have given up so much longer, like way before that <laughs> happened, way before I got to that archive site. When something is so much harder than I imagined, that 
drives me insane. Now it's on principle. Yeah, exactly. Like I should be able to find (laughs) an article in a magazine that's less than 100 years old. This is ridiculous. On Al Gore's internet. (laughs) On Al Gore's internet. I should be able to find an issue of Cosmo. This isn't that hard. I know the month. And then, yeah, eventually that rage drove me to actually find it. Far past when a reasonable person should have given up. And bless you for doing it. A real treat. What about you, Maggie? Never heard of the movie. That's wild to me. What, like, Red was like, I really want to do It Happened One Night. And I was like, I've never heard of it. I don't know that anyone who listens to this podcast will have heard of it. And I was like, you're so... <laughs> like, she gave me the same look when I suggested Edge of Tomorrow. And I really thought, I was like, this is going to be a bonding thing. We're talking about this rom-com, <laughs> a genre we both love. Clearly a classic. And she was just like, I mean, if you have to have that one, I'm not going to stop you. Is it in black and white? <laughs> Listen, I made him watch the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. I knew that my yeah. own personal... This is your punishment. Yeah, I was like, I, I don't really have a lot of cred here. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was brand new to all of it. And then, of course, I, you know, started watching it. And it's a delight. And I'm so happy that we're covering it. But um, I had never seen it. I'd never seen Clark Gable in anything besides Gone with the Wind. Like, I am aware that he was a huge movie star, but I'd never once seen any of the other movies that he was in. By the way, I did study film in college. I don't know how this like <laughs> what kind of somber fucking education I was given. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I would have had a lot more fun. Well, you should write a sternly worded letter <laughs> to the dean of whatever college that was. Dear Scripps College and also Pitzer where I took a ton of these classes. <laughs> Fuck you guys. <laughs> You just watched The Bicycle Thief on a loop and were sad for a while. I mean, it was birth of a nation over and over and over again. Uh, (laughs) And now Napoleon again. The Clark Gable thing, though. I mean, there's so much to unpack Mm -hmm. about Clark Clark Gable. I mean, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But this might be this, I think, is the youngest I've ever seen him because Mm. I, too, think of (laughs) Rhett Butler. Yeah. Like Clark Gable and Rhett Butler. But what a dreamboat. I'm not surprised. <gasps> a snack. I, because I was not super into him and gone with the wind. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> I mean, not my thing. And this one, the whole time I was like, Clark Gable, carry me across a river challenge. Clark Gable, share a hotel room with me challenge. <laughs> <laughs> there was a point where I literally giggled like a schoolgirl. <laughs> and Eric was like, what is happening? I made Eric watch it with me. And I was like, he's so dreamy. <laughs> It turns out he was a huge movie star for a reason, and probably because of his great good looks and incredible charisma. Yeah. (laughs) Imagine. Weird. (laughs) Yeah, I was so thrown when Maggie texted me while she was watching me. She's like, Clark Gable was a snack? And I was like, yes. Yes. Yeah. A snack is short for Clark Gable. I don't know the provenance, but that's how, like, he is the The etymology. He's the (laughs) proto-snack. So did any of you have favorite quotes or moments from either the movie or the short story? Because the repartee in the short story is just loved. It's perfect. It's a banging short story. I thought you had that kind of disposition the moment I laid eyes on you. She complained, pessimist, economist, he corrected. (laughs) (laughs) They're talking about how to spend money, which I love. And then she's later... He's kind of ripping on her for being like a rich girl. And he's like, I don't even know what kind of money it must have taken to nurture you into womanhood. And she goes, you shouldn't try to be poetic. It doesn't go somehow with your face. 
<laughs> an incredible line. <laughs> How about you guys? <laughs> My favorite line, she says, he was too officious, that young man. Anyway, the fewer human associations she suffered, the better she would like it. She had a hate on the whole race, especially men. <laughs> and I was like, just lean into this mm-hmm. whole vibe. <laughs> I really, I mean, oh, there are a lot of moments that were romancy that where I was like, is this, this is, this is like a proto romance story that the modern romance novel did not exist when this story was being written. Um, that's not to say romance didn't exist, but the modern ones didn't. And there is this magnificent moment where she is looking at him and she notices the state of his clothing, right? It's rough and baggy. And then she thinks to herself for the first time in her life, she wished she knew how to sew so that she could like mend the tears in his clothes like so romantic yeah that moment's also super early too yep it's on the bus like she's still mostly pissed at him yeah like she she wakes up on his clothes and it's like oh and then she's like "Ah, never mind (laughs) but it's inexorably drawn to each other these two i mean like Mm -hmm. these two are destined to smash do you think they qualify as faded mates Oh, I think so. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And from the jump, right? On the bus. And then the other, the moment that I really love, I think possibly my favorite line in it is also dialogue. And it's where he takes her purse and removes all the leftover money from it because she cannot be trusted (laughs) and says, confiscated for the common necessity. And then like... (laughs) brings her along and i'm like he took her money but also hot yes the common necessity the feminist in me was like no but the person who's deeply irresponsible with money in me was like yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's gonna take care of her he's gonna get her to new york red what about you oh i mean the the whole movie just the whole i mean i (laughs) you can't say the whole movie i can i can and i did uh but also uh i put the big headline line because i do love it a lot i when it's at the end her father is interrogating peter warren and it's like i asked you a simple question do you love her yes but don't hold that against me i'm a little screwy myself yes and a lot of that is his performance which is why i couldn't simply that whole scene oh my god uh, the back and forth thing in that scene is so great yeah i mean it's proof that clark gable is clark gable for a reason weird so weird (laughs) (laughs) this huge legendary film actor had chops (laughs) but also can i also point out the scene where they have the fake fight as a married couple (laughs) that is wild (laughs) perfect it is unhinged like (laughs) it is an unhinged conversation with like a lot of references to like potentially him hitting her which is not great but hilariously funny. They're basically staging a domestic violence scene to get these cops out of the room, which is wild to me, first of all, that they're like, I'm going to pretend I'm going to hit the shit out of you so these cops will leave. Right. And, the cop, and it works perfectly. And the cops leave and they both just start cracking up. And I was like, man, that is a different time, but very effective. I mean, I want the behind, like never in my life have I wanted like the I was there too episode mm-hmm. for that scene because it also just looked like the two of them were having the best time. 
And I wonder if it was just as fun to act it as it was, you know, for the characters in the moment. Such a good movie. It is a good movie. So I think that there are likely a lot of listeners who have neither read the short story (laughs) (laughs) because they did not do a deep dive into the archives like Red did. Red, do you think there's any way we can provide them with the PDF or a link to it or something? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. So we'll make it easy for you. There are still people like me in the world who somehow exist and have not seen this incredible movie. And for those people, we are going to offer comprehensive 30-second summaries. Red, Sarah, are you both ready with your summaries? Yes. Yes. So first up, Sarah has graciously volunteered to give us a 30-second summary of the 1933 Cosmopolitan Magazine short story. Sarah, are you ready? I am ready. Okay. In three, two... One. Elspeth, an heiress on the run from her domineering dad, and Peter, an inventor with a dream, meet on a night bus running from Miami to New York on a madcap road trip romantic adventure that includes every great trope there is. Enemies to lovers, opposites attract, uptown girl and downtown boy, stuck in a rainstorm, fake marriage, the threat of only one bed, trumpet innuendo, and ultimately... (laughs) A hero who absolutely cannot deal with feeling a feeling. (laughs) All of it comes with a side of eat the rich. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Oh, my God. I can't believe how many tropes are in there. But you're right. They're all there. (laughs) Incredible. I I imagine you watch romance. Like, I've just imagined in my head, you know, those like sandwich ordering forms where you like check boxes yeah. i'm just imagining tick, you tick, tick, an eight and a half by 11 version of that <laughs> a legal pad version of that where you're just like going through oh my god we're gonna get a blackout yeah and then the movie <laughs> adds a whole other one yeah and i i like leapt from my couch with a runaway bride <laughs> <laughs> red yes are you ready to give us the 30 second comprehensive summary of it happened one night absolutely three Two, one. Thoroughly spoiled and newly eloped Ellie Andrews escapes her father's disapproval by swimming away from what I assume is the world's slowest boat. She meets newspaper man <laughs> Peter Warren, who has an on-again, off-again relationship with employment. They proceed through a genre-defining series of mishaps, invents Bug Bunny, are robbed, steals the car from the robber, and eventually make their way to New York City, where they realize that this entire trip costs less than $40, and in that economy, true love can thrive. King Wesley and his autogyro are cast aside, and Ellie and Peter engage in their biblical kink. Damn, 29 seconds. Can I also say, Red, I deeply admire the way that you are always on it with money. In all of these. <laughs> you know how much everyone's making, how much everything costs. <laughs> I'll have you know, despite what this podcast might make you think, I trimmed this down significantly. The money references that are in my notes. I just deleted many of them because I was just like, I will not be able to not bring them up. In this case, though, it's so interesting. I was texting Red while I was watching the movie, like, all right. And when I was reading the story, too, because it opens in the story and she's like, She's just come from a lunch that easily cost someone $10. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Red, what does that mean? Right. And he's eaten 15 cents, right? Worth of food. Yep. It, but $10, according to Red and his website that he uses, mm-hmm. is $227 today for one person to have lunch. That is a fucking Chez Panisse French laundry ass lunch she just had. Yeah. Yeah. And she's coming onto this bus from. So anyway, wild. Well, this is a fun one for the money. <laughs> If for the listener, if you're watching this and you just want to get a sense of what's happening, because I've actually never felt like the inflated numbers made a bigger difference than this movie. 
Just think, Mm -hmm. anytime you hear a dollar, that's $20. Anytime anybody has a Mm. single dollar, that is $20. And that's a close enough conversion to give you the emotional impact. That's really smart. Yeah. Yeah, that's useful. I think what's really fascinating, so it's dead in the middle of the Great Depression, Mm -hmm. right? So like money is, of course, constantly referenced in this story. And then again, of course, in the movie, because it came right out immediately. And it's so relevant to think i i wish i had sort of i put it together you know two pages in when when the hero um when peter and peter says uh he, he's talking about how there's work out there for everyone yeah as long as you're willing to do it yeah. he's like what is your brother doing she's like he plays polo <laughs> yeah <laughs> and she says that's socialistic talk right it's the first time that they are talking and she they've stopped and they are supposed to have breakfast and she says oh, I'm not going to go for breakfast. I'm going to go take a bath at like this like fancy hotel. Like I'm going to spend the money to get a hotel room and take a bath, you know? And he's like, well, you have to come back because the bus is leaving in 30 minutes or however long. And she says, oh, it'll wait for me, right? Because poor little rich girl, like nothing has ever, she has never had, she she does not run on schedules, like another person's schedule, please. Public transportation, never heard of her. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so he says, well, the bus driver will lose his job if he just holds the bus for you. And she says, well, he could get another. And then Peter says, you haven't happened to hear of a thing called unemployment, have you? And then she says, oh, that's just socialistic talk. There are plenty of jobs for people who really want to work. And I was like, oh, shit, this story is going to be all about money, which makes perfect sense during the Great Depression. Yes. Mm-hmm. To write a class, a class romance, right? Where mm-hmm. she is so rich and he is not. And it must have it must have slapped yeah. in the 30s when you read this or <laughs> you watched it because it felt so it must have been a constant sense of us versus them. Right. Mm-hmm. The haves and the haves. I don't think that there has ever been such an, a time in, you know, modern American history where that difference was so stark. The wealthy and the absolute like on the bread lines poor. Yeah. Um, and so this story really tackles it in such a powerful way and not to harp on romance but the that's often why romance hits so powerfully with people because it's able to comment on re- on on class at the same time as it is telling you this like delightful frothy story yeah so red i know you have been like fucking frothing at the mouth to give us some trivia about this movie. Yeah. So, as we have mentioned, written by Samuel Hopkins Adams, featured in the August 1933 issue of Cosmopolitan Magazine, also features lovely charcoal illustrations by James Montgomery Flagg, which you're not going to see in any other version of the book, but I was I was really impressed by. So the movie is directed by Frank Capra, known for It's a Wonderful Life, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, You Can't Take It With You, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and of course it happened one night, we already know that. So this is... The first of three films, along with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Silence of the Lambs, to win all five major Academy Awards. Best Picture, Mm. Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Adapted Screenplay. This is not something people came to. This was a huge hit at the time. You know, people loved it immediately. 
So good of you to choose this obscure film. For I, us. <laughs> I was just like, it's people have heard of it. Feels like you would learn about this film in film school, probably. <laughs> Great point, sir. So this movie is considered one of the last talkies that was pre-code. So this movie is old enough that the restrictions of the Hayes Code did not apply to it. And I have always credited th- that with this movie feeling so real and so grounded. And I I don't know how true that is, but it just there is something about this movie that it doesn't seem so Pleasantville in a way that a lot of movies do for the next 20 years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This movie often makes me wonder... You know, is is people's how much of people's idealization of the 50s is just the fact that we never had anything interesting happen in them? Yeah, (laughs) we had no discussion of money or class or having even even there's a very minor thing, which is probably weird from a character perspective. Like there's a guy who we never see before or since who shows up and steals a suitcase and runs away. And one of the Hays Coast things is criminals have to be brought to justice. Like you can't just have a crime go unpunished. I didn't realize that was part of the code. I mean, it's, you know, and of course, certain aspects were followed more closely than others. I'm sure there's criminals getting away with stuff. But it's just an example of like how minor points in this that, you know, are traumatic and people would be able to relate to um, just aren't in movies after that. So I find that really fascinating. Yeah. Here's a specific thing uh, that I'm so delighted to get to talk to you about. At one point in the movie, they burst into the song... The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze. So that song was first published on paper in 1867, but it was popularized as an audio recording made in uh, 1928 and 32, two different ones that did pretty well. The song is by... Do you know anything about the song, Sarah? Mm-mm. No. So it's kind of surprising how famous the subject of this song is. It's about a French man born in 1838 named Jules Leotard. Okay. Leotard? Jules Leotard is not only... The inventor of the Leotard? uh, ...known for popularizing trapeze performances as a whole. He wasn't just a man on the flying trapeze. He He invented trapeze. He was the flying man. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) But he invented the distinctive garment he wears, a one-piece form-fitting garment. What a strange man. Who looked at the world one day and was like, this is what I'm doing. That's (laughs) wild. Listen, change the game. (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm really fascinated at like a very common thing with songs that you don't have recordings of. So the original version of the song is they get sort of uh if there's anything raunchy it gets watered down through time. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I looked up the original version of the Flying Trapeze and cuz one of the lyrics caught me as weird when I was listening. Once I was happy, but now I'm forlorn, like an old quilt that's tattered and torn, left on this wide world to fret and to mourn, betrayed by a maid in her teens. The girl that I loved, she was handsome. I tried all I knew her to please, but I could not please her one quarter so well as that man upon the trapeze. <laughs> hmm. And that's like the thing that you sing in the chorus line. And so I went and looked up Juliet Leotard, and I have two pictures of him that I'm going to send you. Okay, so the first is most of the pictures that you can find of him. I was going to say, where is it? Show me. Okay, so this he's is, a handsome man. He's a, he's a handsome man. So this oh, is, sure. this All is right. Jules Leotard. Um, and most of the time, Built. later... Yeah, look at those thighs. <laughs> his leotard had a skirt portion. Hmm, how dangerous. Sure. 
And then, so I was looking a little bit more. Well, you got to see, you got to, you got to have the flying. It gives you the, it shows how well you're flying. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about it. I was <laughs> yeah. just thinking it was a modesty thing. <laughs> oh, probably that too. I mean, they probably, he did not invent the cup. No, he did not. Potentially. Oh so, my God. <laughs> <laughs> the second picture. And so I sent you another picture just now. Oh, no, what's happening? Yet, Sarah. It's in the same chat. No, but I was. Oh. 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 <laughs> um, and so. There, he did not invent the cup. <laughs> <laughs> Jules Leotard in his very form fitting garment. Uh, it fits a oh lot to the form. God. The form is. Uh, I have never seen a penis so exactly drawn underneath someone's pants. <laughs> And so, <laughs> I can't look at it. <laughs> I would like to return once again what to the lyrics. What is happening down there? <laughs> well, a lot. Now, no, wait, now we have to return. We're very. Oh boy! But I could not please her one quarter so well as that man upon the trapeze. Well, you know, the the, fl- the man on the flying trapeze <laughs> is about Jules Leotard's outlandish hog, pretty clearly. <laughs> <laughs> And now oh kids sing God. it. And now kids sing it. So that's. Oh my God. That's so funny. <laughs> I can't take it. <laughs> well, this is the whole Hayes Code thing, though, right? Is um, what's amazing about. I did read about the Hayes Code before I came on, on today because I wanted to know more about like how this movie came to be in this really interesting place. Because one of the things that struck me oh, while I was watching it. Um, there is a moment where Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert are in a um they're in in a cabin. He pulls out a rope and a nail which he mm-hmm. does in the sh- listen, when I read that part in the story I was I just wrote competence porn on the side <laughs> of the in the margin because like I would really like to go places with a man who just like has nails and a rope like for in case, in case, like in his pocket, <laughs> which is which is how Peter Peter rolls. But anyway, he puts up a string and then he hangs a privacy curtain between two twin beds in this cabin. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, I was like, oh, this makes sense, because I had sort of vaguely remembered that in I Love Lucy, they couldn't be in the same bed and there had to be a foot on the floor all the time. And, yeah. you know, whatever. And Mary Tyler Moore, all those rules. And then. She's standing there and he's like, let me tell you how men take their clothes off. This is not in the story. A very sexy scene. <laughs> um, It is so hot. The sexual tension as he's like taking off his vest, taking off his tie. He unbuttons his collar, which is so tightly buttoned. He takes off his suspenders. And as he's doing it, he's narrating how he all men undress differently. And this is the order he does it in. And I'm like blushing on my, like, it was so hot. And then he takes, I'm like, he's not going to take off his shirt. Like, this is the 30s. He takes off his shirt. <laughs> his shirt. And I'm like, Clark Gable, what? Mm-hmm. And like, that mm-hmm. would not, I mean, never would have happened yeah. in later. Men were allowed to, I did read that men were allowed to wear like, bathing suits in later movies but like you couldn't like undressing was not a thing you could do the haze code was weird but i don't know that i'd ever seen black and white nipples before (laughs) (laughs) seriously you just don't i was wearing the little undershirt 
Yeah. 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 I, I just never thought anything about it. But that was when he took his shirt off. I was like, oh, this has to be before the fatty Arbuckle thing. <laughs> <laughs> wait, you guys, I have, wait, I have another, I have a piece of trivia. Yes. Do you have an undershirt piece of trivia, um, Red? Oh, no, I don't. Okay. I have a piece of trivia for all of us. After it happened, one night came out. There was a decline in sales of men's undershirts. <gasps> that makes me so happy. <laughs> I like that all the men in 1934 were watching this movie and they're like, Whoa. no, their good. lady, their their wives bought all their underwear. We're like, no more of that. <laughs> I, I will say, everyone, correlation is not causation. It was also, you know, the depths of the depression and undershirts cost money. But I like, I like our version better. There is a relationship between those two things. That's incredible. My last piece of trivia is I, that, and again, as I'm sure you're thinking, Sarah, we could go on for another hour just about trivia about this movie. But totally, they wire a picture of Ellie in the film. Like the cops are who are looking yeah. for her, they like have a picture in 1934, and they're like, we're going to send this electronically to another police station, and they're going to print that out so people can see it. And I was like, what is happening? That can't be true. Yeah, I was like, is this magic? It's 1934. Like, how is, what are we doing? It's not Al Gore's internet. <laughs> so it caused me to look up how long ago you could send a photo electronically and print it. Western Union transmitted its first photograph in 1921, which means you could scan and send a photo electronically seven years before 1928, the year Otto Frederick Rowitter started selling sliced bread. Oh my god, that's fascinating! Right? Yeah. S sliced bread was a distant future when you could send a photo <laughs> electronically. <laughs> Amazing. That blows my that fucking is wild. gourd. Yeah, that is a little Morty's mind blower there. I mean, it did feel when her dad just like rips a photo out of a frame in his office and is like, "Here, send this everywhere." And I'm like, "How?" how <laughs> I know. Like, this is how I know both of you are smarter than me because I watched that and was like, "Sure." <laughs> okay, have they figured out how to pasteurize milk yet but they're fucking like just sending like, photos electronically shit? yeah, yeah got it wild wild <laughs> wait red wasn't there one more piece of trivia one last piece of trivia uh, and again about it being 1934 but in a different way uh, bugs bunny is largely inspired by two characters in this movie shapely uh, the guy who always refers to everybody as Doc and has a similar accent to Bugs Bunny. And also Clark Gable's character, <laughs> who you see literally eating a carrot at one point. And that is why Bugs Bunny eats carrots. <gasps> eating oh a carrot and talking God. fast. Eating a carrot and talking fast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so perfect. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, can I just say one thing about Shapely? Please. At one point th in the in the story, he he's telling Ellie about his life, and it's referenced as life among the typewriters. And I was like, that is the greatest author, yeah, like memoir title there could possibly be. Life among the typewriters is great. It's solid. I wish we still used typewriters, so that would sound relevant. Now you'd just be pretentious. Uh <laughs> <laughs> So we should get into it. There are some big and little differences between this short story and this movie. 
I feel like it's kind of like in the middle of the road where there are some direct moments from the short story that are put right into the film. And then there are some really big changes that kind of fundamentally change the whole thing, in my opinion. For me, the biggest change is Peter. Peter is a wildly different person in these two stories, despite doing many of the same things. I think part of that is due to Clark Gable's absolute charisma. Yeah. And some of that, I I love, like, a mix of confidence porn and, like, tender masculinity in my romance leads. And I feel like the Peter of the short story is this, like, very sweet, just sort of caretaker type He's the gardener. Mm -hmm. She's the flower. (laughs) Yeah, he's softer in the story. He's very soft. Like, he teases her, but he's never mean. And it's it's always sort of affectionate with him. Even from the get, you kind of get the feeling he's just like, oh, this is pretty lady. Whereas Clark Gable is, like, openly antagonistic sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I do think that's kind of a hallmark of a Frank Capra lead. Like, a lot Mm. of the... The Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart, yes. I was going to say Jimmy Smith sounds like that is incorrect. Uh, <laughs> also very hot without a shirt on, though. Yeah, a lot of Jimmy Stewart <laughs> characters tend to be a little more vulnerable than you see in movies at the time. And it's mm. it's fun to see that applied to an actor like Clark Gable, uh, who tends to be a little more alpha in his other parts. Hyper-masculine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels like Clark Gable is like the pure alpha. You're right. How about you guys? What were the biggest differences, things that you thought were like interesting in how they changed that short story or how the things that say the same? For me, the biggest change uh, in how I interpreted them was they make both of the leads on equal standing in the movie to the viewer. Mm. Whereas in the short story, it feels very much to me like Peter Warren's supposed to be the everyman who you're like viewing this mm-hmm. world through. I mean, you're explicitly introduced from his point of view. Mm-hmm. But also it's like, let's all condescend to this rich woman. And like this this man's a salt of the earth. Like he has to work for a living. Also, he's an engineer. He's probably pretty smart. Like we should really take this guy's side. He's the Lizzie Bennet of this story. And... Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the movie, they both have both attractive quality and very real faults. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you can walk out of a movie theater in 1934 and just being like, you know, I don't understand why she did that. And your date's like, she was clearly justified in doing that, like, you know, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Where I feel like it's a much, the, the characters are just on much more even standing. It's not like, it does feel in this short story a little bit like they want you to condescend to Ellie a little bit. Yeah. A lot. I don't know why I said a little bit. Yeah, I think for me, Ellie is the is the major difference and part of the reason why. And this is one of those situations where the film really does a job that the short story falls short on, which is motivation for Mm. Ellie. I think that what's fascinating to me is the short story does a really does some real character work around her where you sort of feel like the reason why Ellie has like left Miami and her family and her rich father to escape to New York is because she just it's vibes right she just (laughs) wants they're bad vibes she's like manic pixie dream girl Daisy Buchanan kind of just a beautiful little fool Mm. which does not surprise me at all written by you know a man a a writer a writer's writer in you know the early 30s she probably is deeply inspired by daisy buchanan right yeah uh, the the primordial manic pixie dream girl but 
in the movie they give her, she is running to, you know, escape her father. But there's a marriage, there's a, a wedding, there's a marriage, there's another man, there's a reason for her to be going to New York. That's kind of elided in the short story. We don't really ever know why she's going, where she's going, what's happening with her. So I think they did a good job of adding that layer of there's something to her. There's a mm-hmm. there is a driving force. In the reverse, I don't really think the whole like runaway bride thing was necessary, but I appreciate <laughs> that it's a nice like end piece. As as you were saying that, I was it was like resonating with me. You show me like my parents just don't understand at the beginning of the movie, and I'm like, I get it. Like, I'm just whatever whatever (laughs) absurd, outlandish, over the top, you know, undefensible action you're about to take. I'm behind. I understand why why this is happening. I'm not confused about like I'm not sitting here like, why doesn't she just go back to her her rich father? Because he does not understand. Because, no, I thought we made that clear in the beginning of this film. Like, I don't know when she jumped off a boat. Yes. (laughs) Listen, the second she dives off that boat, I was like. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> I just, I've imagined the next 15 minutes of that movie because they're not right next to shore. Like they're just in some body of water, unclear. And you could be like, oh, it's a big boat. Maybe it's hard for them to like maneuver to like get to her. But there's other small boats. So I'm just imagining like other captains in like rowboats, like puffing on a pipe, just being like, there she goes, <laughs> long towards the shore. Getting, she, like, getting away from them now, isn't she? Like, and like, God. she, and then it turns out she pawns her wristwatch. It's so funny how things happen. You can see in the writer's mind that they were like, "All right, well, how did she get the money for the clothes? Because she was wearing like a dumb dress mm-hmm. when she dove into the water. How did she get the money for all these traveling clothes and all the other stuff? Like, where'd she get her, you know, her bag to be stolen? All of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I pawned my wristwatch and then used the money to buy all this stuff. And I'm like, your seawater laden wristwatch? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just one of those moments that no one would have asked that question, everybody writing this movie. But now that you've said it, it just... <laughs> These moments always stand out to me because they feel like the moment when an editor is like, well, how'd that happen? And the writer's like, whatever, fuck it. She ponder watch. And you yeah. like make up a reason. <laughs> that studio note sucks eight yeah. years later when we're like, what? <laughs> no one cares. Uh, <laughs> one of the other big differences that changes the power dynamic a little bit from the story to the film is that Peter needs something from her in the movie. Mm-hmm. In the story... He's just like a guy yeah. who's guy. down to clown. and He's, he's <laughs> just down to earth. Like, he's such an yeah. honorable man. Like, it, it, in the I short story. It's fine. You can rip on him all you want. I will marry him. I, and then. <laughs> I feel like you guys liked the short story so much more than I did. Because I was just very much like, it felt very icky to me. Like, how much we're supposed to sympathize with Peter. Yeah. Look, they even Love made him, him the, the universal good looks and hair of red haired with freckles. Like, I'm like, I get it. Like, he's an everyman, you know, like. <laughs> um, but in the movie, Clark Gable is a news reporter and Ellie's disappearance is a huge story. So mm-hmm. he is sticking with her ostensibly for the scoop. Mm-hmm. He even sends his editor a taunting telegram. Love this. That costs $60 to receive, just being like, I got the story of the century. Fuck you, buddy. <laughs> Send it, collect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hilarious. 
So like Maggie pointed out, it's $60, which in the movie is $2.60. The inflation is so huge. Like even I'm like, oh, yeah, it's more expensive. What is it? $10? Like it's not that ridiculous. But he's just one banana, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) No, he just reached in and he pulled $60 out of your wallet. Like I would be pissed if I was that guy's boss. Wait, but I'm so glad we're talking about money again. Because then there is a really magnificent moment that is not in the story and is in the movie. And that is the woman who passes out on the bus because she hasn't eaten. Yes. Yeah. And again, like, I hate to constantly go back to the fact that it was the depression, but I feel like it's important for us always to, you know, think about that. But so that kid, the kid who Clark Gable is like trying to console your mom's going to be okay. She's just passed out. Like it'll be fine. She just needs to eat something. And the kid who's like, we haven't eaten since yesterday because there's a job in New York for my mom. And if we don't go now, it might be gone. And that sort of urgency, which had to have been really powerful in the watching of the movie Mm -hmm. in the thirties. Right. And then he pulls out, I love the characterization of like Peter in the moment in the movie pulls out his $10 bill, right? Like in the story is like his, his final 10, like he doesn't spend it. It is all he has. It is his only safety net. And he pulls it out on the bus and he looks at it in the movie and then starts to put it away. And then Ellie grabs it and hands it to the kid Mm -hmm. and there's this like push pull of she doesn't understand the value of a dollar she doesn't understand like how hard it is for a normal person to make ten dollars but at the same time like she does understand that like this child and his mother need it more than them and the balance of the characterization there is so deft and it's such a difficult needle to thread and the story does not do that. The The printed story cannot, in, in a lot of ways, did not make that work the way the literal acting in that in that scene does. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up the depression because one thing that is so unique about this is like normally when we're looking at something, it's about the depression. Like the filmmaker set out to make a movie about yeah, that time like period. Like Steinbeck. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's later, usually, you know, it's it's looking back at, at best at their own experiences mm-hmm. in that. But here you have a movie that is in this time period and is ostensibly a rom-com. And it you, you just see how omnipresent, you know, this financial catastrophe is like this, like mm-hmm. this hunger that it's like they felt like we're riding a bus, like people on the bus aren't going to be in the greatest condition. You know, there's yeah. it's such a fascinating document to see how even when you're writing a flighty rom-com like stuff the the reality of the world seeps in it it's one of the things hearing you guys talk about this that makes me wish more movies acknowledged covid yeah i know that's like kind of like a weird thing but like one of the things that i found really exhilarating about glass onion was like finally a movie just had people wearing masks and had Mm -hmm. how they treat masking as a character thing just the way that it is in the real world And it makes me sad that so many storytellers are shying away from including the reality of our current life Mm -hmm. because later it is so fascinating and it is one of the most kind of compelling things about this incredibly compelling movie anyway to think of it as a historical document as well is like Mm -hmm. such a cool invitation and such a less boring way than fucking 
birth of a nation or something. <laughs> They're just setting out to tell the story of this time with all of their weird racist hangups. It's like a cool, like they wanted the same things we want. They wanted to tell an awesome romantic story that was fun and funny and sexy and cool. And this other huge reality was coexisting with that. We all have always coexisted with these incredible tragedies. And I like that the this movie doesn't pretend that that wasn't happening. To add to that, it's that sense of joy and hope and love and the promise of a future that is full of all of those things mm. is not absent from a time of strife and trauma and hardship. And that is a message that I think resonates so well now as we're living this like crazy time that's full of things that feel terrible. Yeah. Like we can still have joy and hope and love. And that's what these books, these movies and this story is sort of telling us. Yeah. And I do, I think the presence of this scene that you're talking about does that in a way that the story, the short story doesn't. I think like the short mm. story talks about money a lot. Like all of the money conversation comes from the short story down to the numbers a lot of the mm -hmm. time. Oh, yeah. But the way that it is made into this sort of like larger, more resonant thing about hope in a time that is hard comes from the movie almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. One thing that they do for Peter is in the book, he is actually going to get a good job that it, it's not like, oh, it's a solid middle class job. Like he's going to be by the day standards like, you know, he's going to be upper middle class mm. that he's going to make seven to eight thousand dollars a year. That's if you're curious about one hundred and sixty to one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year. That's solid. not upper middle class. That's. Yeah. Yeah, that's real money. Yeah, middle, yeah. Upper, sure. middle upper class. I mixed him. Yeah. <laughs> so he's going to be doing very well. And in the movie, I think they make the decision that even that makes him less sympathetic, less relatable, and they make him a newspaper man. And so the largest amount of money, aside from the reward that he is up for, is the $1,000 for the story, which, by the way... $1,000 for the story, he was going to get paid for this single story, $22,000. <laughs> and it's on the get front page. Get that bag, yeah. Peter. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Journalism, man. It's had, a, it's had a rough 89 years. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but he's also marrying rich, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's a real piece of this puzzle. Like the, the fact that the, the father... Can we talk about... I'm sorry, you guys, I know we're at an hour, but... I just have so much more to say. Um, first of all, I, I do want to say, like, neither the story nor the film treat women very well outside no. of Ellie. No. All of the sympathetic characters and the conscious characters on, on page and screen are men. And Ellie's relationship with her father is very sort of relevant, I think, in both mm -hmm. in both situations. Because we are told from the beginning, oh, Ellie and her father don't, like, my parents just don't understand, as Red said. Yeah. But by the end, the dad is, like, in Peter's corner in both. You know, he, mm -hmm. she, he clearly loves you and love is what's important. But this is a hundred millionaire at the time. So, yeah. you know, a multi-billionaire at the time. And 
So Peter's like not he they're not going to be, you know, wanting they're not going to be sort of, yeah, scraping by on a newspaper man's salary. No, which is good because he doesn't sell the story. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And it's really fascinating to me the the way that and I think about this a lot as somebody who writes romance and write there's there's a reason why you very rarely find um, people who struggle with finances as protagonists in romance novels. And that is, or at least heroes and, you know, in het romance novels, because that is because like money helps us feel secure. And if you feel insecure, all these other kind of feelings are dwarfed by that insecurity. Um, And I think part of the fantasy of this at the time, and even now is they will be okay. And I think they will be okay because Ellie's dad likes Peter. Yeah, that inheritance is about to... At the end of the movie, at the end of the book, they'll be okay because Peter's a self-made man, right? No, that's so real. And it's making me think of actually your podcast when you guys were talking about Lisa Kleypas and how her romantic leads when like the woman is like, I like dresses. And then the romantic lead will be like, then you shall have 50 dresses. (laughs) (laughs) Literally a million dollars of silk. Go. Yeah. Um, And that is like, it is part of the fantasy. And I think that that is really fun. And it's particularly fun in times when money is like a huge concern to get to escape to this place where that's not a concern. Yeah. It's such a like lovely, like, ah, cool. I'm not worrying about that right now. (laughs) There's a time and a place for it. And it's not with my smut. (laughs) Exactly. Were there any small or petty differences that you guys noticed that, you know, don't really matter, but were interesting to you? For me, one of the ones that was a cut that the movie made where I was like, correct, was in the short story. She has this whole thing with someone named Corker that she's saying is her husband who is not her husband. And in the movie, they just did away with that. And I was like, yes, because that was just kind of confusing and weird. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe in like a full length novel, there's a little more time for lies and figuring it out and stuff like that. But in a short story, it's like a 30 page story. Like, it was just a little like, okay, thank you. There was just one more complication we didn't need and didn't ultimately help me understand anything more profound about either of them. Yeah, absolutely. For me, aside from the fact that my boy Peter Warren wasn't a redhead because it was filmed in black and white, uh, <laughs> I I liked. I mean, it's it's such a a trope. Uh, I mean, a trope isn't even isn't even getting to it. Like you know, writers write characters who are writers. So for them to like take a character who was an engineer, and literally over the course of this podcast, I've become more sympathetic to this. <laughs> But to make him a newspaper man, I'm like, oh, the writers are like, let's give him a more relatable job. Let's make him uh, a writer. That makes more sense. People are more familiar with that. People know what writers are. I was just like, shut up. I was I was very annoyed when I saw that he was actually, you know, oh, I was like, oh, he's actually this guy who's, you know, he's an inventor. He's like working with he's a chemist, yeah. I guess, basically. Wow. It just made me realize how you never see them have like jobs other than writer when you're when you're watching these types of movies. <laughs> So that was something that annoyed me. Probably actually made sense for the movie. It informed a lot of, you know, as you were saying, Maggie, the yeah. his motivation for staying with her that made the movie fit together in a lot of good ways. But yeah, it annoyed me. <laughs> Sarah, was there anything small or silly that you you noticed? 
one of the things that I think was handled really well in the story, there's a point in the story where Peter sends a telegram to her father and says, like, I know I'm the only one who knows the truth about your daughter and where she is. Don't believe anyone else. Mm -hmm. And then he misdirects the father. He sends the telegram plus a dollar bill clipped to it to a Western Union office in New Orleans to be telegrammed to the father in Miami or in New York or wherever the father is to basically throw off the trail of everybody who is chasing them. And it's a clever little moment that is, you know, a couple paragraphs long, but just enough that you can see the writers like just buying an extra couple of days for them to be on the road. And I felt like the movie kind of like scrubs over a lot. Like there's a sense that they're being chased at the beginning, but then it's sort of the gas runs out of the engine on the chase in a lot of ways. Mm. And so for me, there is a moment in the movie where it feels like, oh, now we're just doing like scene to scene to scene of like madcap adventure, right? Like now the guy's going to steal their their luggage and now they're going to have to spend the night in this cabin and she's in line for the showers. Like, yeah. And I can understand like fundamentally you have to take things out, but that misdirection adds a layer of intelligence to Peter in the story mm. that in the movie he can a little bit come off as not really a heavy thinker. Mm. Yeah. But again... I think it has to do with make him an everyman, right? Like yeah. make him make him somebody we all understand. A tiny difference of a thing that I really enjoyed, the exact same thing happens in both the short story and the movie, which is the guy who they hitchhike a ride from drives off with their luggage. Yeah. Peter chases him down, returns with like a fat lip, a black eye, like he's been in a fight, but also the car and the luggage. <laughs> Because he has tied this man to a tree, <laughs> which is fucking wild. But in the movie, I think because Clark Gable is a little more boorish, it's hysterical when he just shows back up. He's like, get in the car, yeah. get in the car fast. And he's yeah. like all mussed up. And <laughs> it's so funny. I really enjoyed that moment in the movie. Can we also talk about the great mo the hitchhiking moment in the movie? The hitchhiking which is, is incredible. Oh, we I can't believe we almost didn't talk about How that. Have we not talked about <laughs> what that? What of the most famous scenes in cinema? Yeah. <laughs> in the story, they just hitchhike. It's yeah. normal. And then of course in the movie, thanks to the lack of code. Yeah. I mean, she like sexes it up. She flashes leg. She shows a shapely ankle. <laughs> but only after she has done a thing, and I'm sorry, Red, but that many, many women have done with men in their lives, which is let him fail multiple times <laughs> doing a very simple thing before she decides. I mean, it is a perfect moment because you can absolutely see how, like, anybody watching this movie in a movie theater, any, like, human woman watching this movie in a movie theater was like oh i have for sure seen that go down exactly this way like <laughs> and then also like pleases the men in a completely different way like i mean obviously this is very heteronormative but you understand what i'm saying yeah and then and so like it just feels like that moment would just it would be fire for everyone in the movie theater and then um but he is so angry 
And that is the best part. Like they go into so real again, perfect motivation, right? They get into the car with this man who is going to steal all their stuff. And it's like, he is so in his head about the fact that we don't know, right? Is it that, is it that she did it better than him? Like she did get the hitchhiking. She hitchhiked better than him. Is it that she showed her leg to a stranger? I think it's more of that, but Whatever it is, he is seething yeah. in the back seat for the rest of that scene. And then they get out of the car and he's like, we have to get out and stretch our legs. Rah, rah, rah. And they get out. And then this guy takes off with all their stuff. And it is a great, the scenes back to back to back just work perfectly. And it's not in the story and it's better. Yeah. And it also makes the fact that he gets in a physical altercation <laughs> right then a little oh, yeah, more. He's just pissed. Yeah, he's just mad. And so he's yeah. like willing to do something like that. Whereas in the the story, I remember that happening and I was like, is Peter psychotic? <laughs> 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 it's like, I love him, but like that's wild that he just like ran and beat that guy up. <laughs> that guy stole all of their stuff. Just getting your stuff back would make sense. But coming back with the car after beating someone up out of nowhere, it makes more sense in the movie because he's so butthurt. <laughs> <laughs> he like he needs a win. He needs the win. <laughs> in the in the hitchhike scene, what you're talking about, I got really caught up in his techniques. I'd I'd never really because I was it's like such a small thing in the like grander scene. But like uh, honestly, because I, I think it was number two where he like waggles the thumb. He's like, this one is basically. I've got hot gas. Like, I got a story about the Barnes. Like, like <laughs> I was just imagining somebody. Just, and, and it completely, so, when you watch him, like, his face, he's like, come on, I got a good story. <laughs> like, when he wiggles the thumb back mm-hmm. there, uh, it was cracking me up that they had such full-fledged ideas of these different hitchhiking styles, uh, which are just clearly bits they're doing so that she can win. Okay, well, I think we have come to that time where we have to give our final verdict, which was better, the 1933 short story or the 1934 film. Sarah, as our guest, would you like to weigh in first or last? <laughs> oh, I guess I'll go first. Okay. Um, oh, I do have one other thing that I want to oh, say. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, no. They don't kiss in either the story or the film. Oh and God. when I say that to you, you're shocked, right? Yeah, because it's so sexy. Yeah. Because it's so sexy. It's so sexy. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they never kiss. And I'm like, I it's for the first time in my life, I watched a film where they didn't kiss and I wasn't mad about it. So I'm going to say. <laughs> Frank Capra was good. Obviously, the movie is better because I wasn't mad. Like, it felt like they smashed the entire time, but they didn't. And so that is, yeah, that, I mean, give him the Oscar. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's real. So for me, I think it is the movie. But I really loved the story, too. I was shocked by how much I love the story, considering. I loved the story, too, which I was very surprised by, especially given my base level resentment of having to read it off of a PDF that I was like (laughs) zooming in on on my phone. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, you read it on your phone? (laughs) Oh, my God, Maggie. I have like babies to take places and shit. I can't be like lugging my laptop around. (laughs) I can't be bringing paper. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. I could have just printed it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's stupid. That's on me. <laughs> anyway, I did love the story. And initially, I was watching it all through the guise of like, well, the the male lead in the movie is like meaner than the one in the, in the story. And I, I miss that like softness from him because the one in the story is close to like kind of my ideal romantic lead. Like I love the like... I love the daddy. Like, I can't help it. Like, I just like, mm-hmm. I love that character. I, they're very romantic to me. That's the fantasy. And Clark Gable is less that. But the movie is better for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Not only that it is not only available on PDF, but also <laughs> <laughs> the acting in it is incredible. We've talked about Clark Gable a lot, but Claudette Colbert is also fantastic in this movie. Perfection. Like, just such a good line between disdainful of most people she meets. Especially men. And this incredible, yeah, incredible (sighs) softness and vulnerability when it comes to, like, working with her male counterpart. And I just thought it was a fucking hoot and a holler, and it is wild that I had never heard of this incredibly award-winning famous movie starring very famous actors. (laughs) Red? You actually pointed something out about Claude Colbert that I hadn't really thought about. They really do a great job of making sure she's just ignorant of the world and not contemptuous of it, mm, which yeah. is not the case in the in the in the story. It's true. Which is not the case in the short story. Like she is much more actively. I mean, you could. I mean, more aware of the world, but also a little more ingrained in her class. Yeah, mm-hmm. and participating in it as opposed to having just grown up in it and hasn't seen the real world, which is very much how it's played in the movie. Yeah, which makes her a much more sympathetic character. It's true; she's a lot more likable in the movie for not being a straight up like a mean rich girl. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised. I liked the short story at all. It being a short story from 1933. I I love the movie. I mean, the movie's just, it's like, it's not even a competition. I can't even make the case for why the short story, I can see why they took it and were like, we can make this into an amazing film. But just the the comedy, the romance, the fact that a film made in 1934 can be such a delight in 2023 is mind boggling to me. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite films of all time. Clearly the movie. Red, I have a question. If we just came to movies from the 30s, do you have a recommendation for where we go next oh. if we loved Oh, my gosh. This? I, I was very much not prepared for this. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, from the 30s is so hard. I'm not sure I could pull in. Or like one. another sort of comedy that has the same vibe for you. Right. Um, is but it, old. Yeah, yeah. Just give me black and white nipples, please. (laughs) I do have one from the 30s. Um, uh, Bringing Up Baby, starring Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, 1938. It's a delightful film. We are all we are in the haze comb, so it's much more screwbally and less grounded. Mm -hmm. But it is super fun. It was one of the first ones I watched after I had I had a similar thing. I just asked people like, what other old movie is good? I had no idea. (laughs) <laughs> and mm-hmm. another one that more people have seen, but if you haven't, maybe you hadn't considered it, I think is really wonderful if it gets to be around the holidays. The original Miracle on 34th Street <gasps> is shockingly funny in a way that if you've only seen the 90s one, for example, which I know a lot of people my age uh, have only seen that one, 
Uh, that one's just just schmaltzy, and the original one has a ton of heart, but is also genuinely funny and has a bunch of interesting history about it. I mean, just one detail. The guy who plays Santa Claus was literally the head of the parade at the Thanksgiving Day Parade in the actual parade the previous year. Oh, my god! Where they are filming, which is how they get those shots. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really good film. Also, if you want to revisit our last season, there is a Pride and Prejudice adaptation from the 1930s that we didn't cover. <laughs> <laughs> which one best picture? Which one best picture? There we go. So, just something to keep in mind. Sarah? It is always a pleasure to get to chat with you. This was so much fun. I had the best time. Thank you so much for thinking of me for this one. And I I really am very flattered. Thank you. Thank you for bringing your expertise and your enthusiasm for romance to this. I think it really like pulls the room together. And I cannot believe how many fucking tropes there were. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been like, yeah, enemies to lovers. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> There is a literal hint in the story where they're in some place and somebody says, well, could you sleep in a three-quarter bed? Which is a full-size bed, everybody. That's what that means. Oh. And they immediately are both like, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like a whole back and forth about how they can't, like, they're married, but they're, it's just, they have a bad situation. Like, he snores. They can't. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, only one bed, make it so. But then I knew it definitely wouldn't make it into the movie because the 30s. <laughs> but Sarah, what is there anything that you are reading or watching right now that you feel like everyone should be reading or watching right now? These are going to be very boring, but I just finished a book. So now I'm catching up on all of the TV that I have missed. So I am currently watching Ted Lasso, which mm -hmm, I'm mm -hmm, obsessed mm -hmm, with, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Succession, which mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with, and White Lotus, which everybody watched long before I did because I was too busy working on a book. Are you watching season one or two? One right now. Oh my and God. And I'm having the best time. Enjoy. It is a delight. I'm very excited. And that's that. That's what I'm doing. Red? Two documentaries that I think are delightful. There's nothing I love more than a documentary about a subject that I have never cared about once before and then to watch a movie and make it my whole personality. <laughs> so one is The Pez Outlaw which is the story of a guy who was importing international pezes for, for years. Like and, can the candies? Yeah, the Pez candy dispensers specifically, <laughs> which were, were collector's <laughs> items. And Oh, bless Netflix. <laughs> that is just a fascinating character study and just has twists and turns that you would not anticipate. And also Spaceship Earth is another documentary Came out a couple years ago. So if you're familiar with like the biodome, I don't know if you remember or if you're familiar with Spaceship Earth. Yeah. It was an yeah, actual yeah. place they tried to build that was self-sustainable and they were going to sealed it and lived there for a year. With and Polly Shore. So that's the movie. There was an actual one that it's based on. There's an actual one that it's based <laughs> oh, okay. on. And to me, until I watched this movie, it had always just been a joke and a punchline and what they were doing wasn't really science, and it was, you know, just a silly thing. And by the end of this, I'm mad at all the media about it. I love these people. Are you moving to the biodome? You'll. I want to live with them on their commune that they have and still <laughs> live together, several people. Wait, they still live there? No, they don't live there. They live together. Oh, all right. There's a twist at the end that you will not believe about who takes over the spaceship Earth after they sort of get kicked out. 
uh, Steve Bannon. Oh, what? God, of course. You. I. That, that fucking guy. We were having such a good time, and then you invoked his name. A well, way to bring it down. <laughs> that gives you a sense of just how all over the place this documentary is. Wild. Wild. But yeah, that's it's great. What about you, Maggie? I am a TV glutton right now because everything is coming up, Maggie. There is new Ted Lasso, new Succession, new Yellow Jackets, new Abbott Elementary, new RuPaul's Drag Race, which means that there is also new The Pit Stop, new (laughs) fashion photo reviews, and um, clips from Roscoe's, which is this bar where queens go after they get eliminated. And this season, these queens have been talking shit like crazy. They get on Roscoe's and they just get so mad. And it is incredible. It is everything I've ever wanted. This season is so stupid. I am enjoying myself very much. At the time we are recording this, the finale is two weeks away. So the next episode will be the um, reunion episode, which is going to be so much yelling. There's just going to be so much yelling. I can tell you that right now because there were some fights and then the reunion shows where they basically just rehash every fight they had on the show. It's a it's a great time. It's very stressful, and I really enjoy watching. I never rewatch them. Have so much fun watching them every year. <laughs> <laughs> and then the finale will be in two weeks. And as of right now, I am Team Sasha Colby. Yeah. So like, it's just been. I mean, we just saw the Ted Lasso episode where Keely is clearly gay, and I'm so excited for it. I was really like, oh, my God, what am I going to do when she chooses between Jamie or Roy? This is going to tear my heart asunder. And then they were like, boom, third option where you'll forget those men ever existed. (laughs) (laughs) Hot other businesswoman. And I was like, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Who's Roy Kent? I don't know. So (laughs) uh, it's just been an exciting time for me and my television. I do read a lot, I promise. (laughs) But right now it's been all TV all the time. (laughs) It's not my fault that there's new Ted Lasso succession, Yellow Jackets, Abbott. No, when it all drops at the same time, what can you do? Nothing. I mean, new the fact that Yellow Jackets is not the only thing I'm talking about right now is just an indication of how much TV there is right now. Yeah. <laughs> and then these stupid kids live in our house, just distracting I mean, us. And I'm supposed to quote parent them and whatever love them and quote give them my attention go to bed mom wants to watch her stories (laughs) mom wants to watch about teenage girls cannibalizing each other you need to get the fuck out of here (laughs) (laughs) you know normal things that you say to your Mm three-year-old so (laughs) sarah as always you are an incredible guest we are so honored to have you with us with your wit and your intellect and your expertise Where can people find you and all of your incredible work online? Well, thank you. Yes, I am Sarah McLean. You can read any of my books at your local bookstore or wherever you get ebooks. You can find me online at sarahmcclain.net or on Instagram at Sarah McLean, or every Wednesday, if you enjoy the dulcet tones of me talking about, you know, class and kissing, you can (laughs) hear it every Wednesday on Faded Mates, which is my podcast all about romance novels and why they are the best. And that you can find wherever you get all your podcasts, fadedmates.net. 
Gotta say, Faded Mates is a great show, and I have really been enjoying listening to it. And I particularly love and respect when you get authors who have helped make the genre onto the show to talk about their life. The Catherine Coulter episode really blew my mind open. It's just one of those names where you're like, yeah, Catherine Coulter, okay, I like, I get it. And it, you don't connect the humanity right. to that because she's like such a brand. She's such a thing. And then to hear her talking about like getting lunch with her editor and like... Yeah. I don't know. It was just incredible. It was so much fun. We did one with Nora Roberts where as part of a story she was telling, she said the words, I wanted to taste her blood in my throat. And I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That is not a thing I would expect Nora Roberts to say. (laughs) But I guess I should have since she writes thrillers too. So (laughs) it's great. You should go listen to it right now. (laughs) I will. And thank you for having me. I'll come back anytime. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much for listening. Happy reading. Happy watching.